Good morning, Sherman. Um, uh, just because half of you know this information and you probably are distracted by it, I got bit by a dog uh, on the way into church this morning, but I'm okay. So uh, if you ever, see I have a Band-Aid with blood in it. <laughs> if you ever want to experience something of the kingdom of God and the beauty of the church, just have something mildly traumatic happen to you while you are on your way. Uh, turns out the church was the best place to be. because. Um, Somebody got me tea, and somebody brought me ibuprofen, and somebody helped me wash out my wounds and put band-aids on me, and somebody called in some ibuprofen, and uh, somebody called animal control. <laughs> we, got, uh, we got all the things. Um, and it was really actually lovely to be cared for in such a way, and it felt like, oh yeah, this is the church. This was the best place I could have been to have been bid by a dog. <laughs> But also, if you're walking down Sherman today, beware of a dog that might bite you. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, so hopefully you notice that I am here and there has not been a scripture reading uh, because today we're doing a thing that we have done before and that is uh, you're gonna hear the greatest sermon ever written. Uh, but it is not my sermon, it is the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so I'm just going to preach Jesus's words for you this morning. Um, you will hear his, his words to his disciples and to the crowds gathered around him, eager and straining to hear every word, asking themselves, who is this man? Today we're beginning um, a series on the kingdom of God and particularly how it is here now, um, which is really an interesting question to be dwelling in, as I have been the last couple of weeks. Um, I think that the best description that we can come up with a sermon, with, sorry, come up of the kingdom as it exists in this world now uh, is the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're gonna begin with just that text. Um, and in the coming weeks, we'll talk more about it. You know, what is the kingdom and what does it mean to live in it? And particularly, how is it here now? You know, we often talk about the not yet, the ways that we're waiting, but how can we live in it now? Um, but for today, just Jesus's words. Um, as scholars have studied the Sermon on the Mount, uh, they have wondered about how we should read it. Uh, some say, you know, if you're a Christian, this is your, that's what, the Sermon on the Mount is what your life should look like. If you're a Christian, this is your way of life. And others say, no, that's impossible. Nobody can live up to that kind of moral perfection. Um, it just shows us, the sermon's just there to show that we need forgiveness. Um, so don't expect to live up to it, just receive grace. Still others kind of want to chart away in the middle of those two. Um, you know, we may not be able to live up to it yet, but it's our goal, and empowered by the Spirit, we move in that direction. And there are lots of arguments and nuance in all of this, lots of different people say different things. What I tend to think is that the Sermon on the Mount is a description of another world, especially the Beatitudes. It's a description of the kingdom of God, and to the extent that we and those around us are obedient to it, we will experience the joy of living in the kingdom. It's not just an individual thing, right? I could be like 100% obedient to it and still experience quite a lot of pain because I live in a sinful world. Um, it's, a, it's a whole community thing, which is what we at the church try to do. We don't 
do it great either, but, <laughs> but it's a description of another world, a world that Jesus inhabited and that he invites us to inhabit with him. And as with everything in our faith, there is abounding grace for the ways that we fall short. That's why it's important that as we hear these words, we remember who it is that preached them. One of our preaching professors said that if you forget who preached these words, you can e they can easily become legalism or unattainable ideals. You have to remember the preacher, and then they become words of grace, an invitation to life. The preacher, Jesus Christ, is the one through whom the world was created. He knows how things work. He knows how you work. He is the one who came to you in love, stepping down from the heavens to walk with us in poverty and dust, in trial and temptation. He is the one who knows you better than you know yourself and whose love is beyond all other loves. When Jesus speaks, he speaks so that you can flourish and live. He speaks so that you can have life and have it to the full. These are words of grace that we will hear. And that's important to remember because he will speak some hard words. Hard to hear and hard to follow, but they are life to us. Like he said when, we, when he was tempted, we don't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. These words are not just rules and regulations, but nourishment and life to us. Remember the preacher. Remember that he is the one who will go from this grassy hill where he preached these words to another hill, Calvary, where he will give his life to save us, take upon himself all of our brokenness, extend to us the most costly grace of all. Remember the preacher. He will speak hard words, but they are words meant to set us free. Now, I'm just going to read the text of the sermon to you. Um, this is chapters, this is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Um, and it's from the message, which I'm choosing, I chose the message because uh, sometimes the words of this text can be stale for us. We've just heard them so many times, and I don't want your eyes to glaze over quite so much. I want you to engage it. Um, so I ask you to sit up and pay attention. Um, do what you need to do to be attentive in this space. Um, but also, like, I want to say, I don't agree with every interpretive move that Eugene Peterson took in translating the message. Um, the message is, like, on the scale of translations, there are some that try to just, try to be as literal as possible, just translate the words as, as exactly as possible, which, to be honest, is not possible. Like, when you're translating a language, it's more of an art than a science. So, um, there's always interpretive stuff in translations, but, like, there are literal ones, and then there are paraphrases, and the message is like all the way to the end of paraphrase. So there's a lot of interpretation in it. But I also don't think that our, the gift of scripture is that we extract the right meaning and then try and convince everybody of the perfect meaning. The gift of scripture is that we struggle with it together, that we sit under it and humble ourselves before it, and that God is in that struggle. So I don't agree with everything that Eugene Peterson does with his translation. Um, but I invite you to receive it and hold it and let that be part of the struggle. There are some things that need some unpacking too. Like Jesus says, and actually the message will say, if anyone strikes you, stand there and take it. 
Uh, he is not, Jesus is not talking about staying in an abusive relationship. And like, I want to say that one real clear because that, um, it's just so easy to guilt ourselves into really hard spaces. Uh, but I'm not going to be able to go into all of it. Some of it needs unpacking. But for now, let's just hear it all together. Hear the sermon. Let it challenge and change you. Imagine yourselves on that hillside coming to hear this strange teacher that everybody has been talking about, asking, who is this man? Feel yourself sitting in the grass, a gentle wind and the sun on your back. Squint as you try to see him through the crowd. Feel the hush, hush all around you as people strain to hear his words. What wisdom might you glean from him today? Who is this teacher who has such authority? And what might he say to you? Let's pray before we begin. Holy Spirit, we uh, acknowledge that you are here with us, within each one of us, moving among us. And we pray that um, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and that this word would be nourishment to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what's most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you'll find yourself cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete and fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens, give a cheer even. For though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. And know that you're in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. Let me tell you why you're here. You're to be the salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of the earth. If you lose your saltiness, 
How will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Or here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, don't you, you don't think I'm going to put you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now I've put you up there on a hilltop, on a light stand. Shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. Don't suppose for a minute that I have come to demolish the scripture, either God's law or the prophets. I'm not here to demolish, but to complete. I'm going to put it all together. Put it all together in a vast panorama. God's law is more real and lasting than the stars in the sky and the ground at your feet. Long after the sky, stars burn out and the earth wears out, God's law will be alive and working. Trivialize even the smallest item in God's law and you have only trivialized yourself. But take it seriously. Show the way for others and you will find honor in the kingdom. Unless you do far better than the Pharisees in matters of right living, you won't know the first thing about entering the kingdom. You have to do it to know it. You're familiar with the command to the ancients, do not murder. I'm telling you that anyone who's so, so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. Carelessly call a brother idiot and you just might find yourself hauled into court. Thoughtlessly yell stupid at a sister and you are on the brink of hellfire. The simple moral fact is that words kill. This is how I want you to conduct yourself in these matters. If you enter your place of worship and when you're about to make your offering, you suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you, abandon your offering, leave immediately. Go to this friend and make things right. Then and only then come back and work things out with God. Or say you're on a, out on the street and an old enemy accosts you, don't lose a minute. Make the first move. Make things right with him. After all, if you leave the first move to him, knowing his track record, you're likely to end up in court, maybe in jail. If that happens, you won't get out without a stiff fine. You know the next commandment pretty well, too. Don't go to bed with another person's spouse. But don't think you've preserved your virtue simply by staying out of bed. Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. Those leering looks you think nobody notices, they also corrupt. Now let's not pretend that it's easier than it really is. If you want to live a morally pure life, here's what you have to do. You have to blind your right eye the moment you catch it in a lustful leer. You have to choose to live one eye, one-eyed, or else be dumped on a moral trash pile. Or you have to chop off your right hand the moment you notice it raised threateningly. Better a bloody stump than your entire being discarded for good in the dump. Remember the scripture that says, whoever divorces his wife, let him do it legally, giving her divorce papers and her legal rights. 
Too many of you are using that as a cover for selfishness and whim, pretending to be righteous just because you're legal. Please, no more pretending. If you divorce your wife, you're responsible for making her an adulteress, unless she's already made herself that by sexual promiscuity. And if you marry such a divorced adulteress, you're automatically an adulterer yourself. You can't use legal cover to mask moral failure. And don't say, don't say anything you don't mean. This counsel is embedded deep in our traditions. You only make things worse when you lay down a smokescreen of pious talk, saying, I'll pray for you, but never doing it, saying, God be with you, and not meaning it. You don't make your words true by embellishing them with religious lace. In making your speech sound more religious, it becomes less true. Just say yes and no. When you manipulate, manipulate words to get your own way, you go wrong. Here's another old saying that deserves a, a new look. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. If someone drags you into court and sues the shirt off, for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and present it as a gift. And if someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice a servant life. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Live generously. If you're familiar with the old written law, love your friend, and it's unwritten companion, hate your enemies, I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer. For then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. That's what God does. God gives the best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish, to everyone, regardless the good, the bad, the nice, and nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you sim simply say hello to those who greet, greet you, do you deserve a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. Your kingdom subjects, now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way that God lives toward you. Be especially careful when you are trying to, be especially careful when you're trying to do good so that you don't make a performance of it. It might be good theater, but the God who made you is not the one who will be applauding. When you do something for someone else, don't call attention to yourself. You've seen them in act in action, I'm sure, play actors, I call them, treating a prayer meeting and, and the street corner alike as a stage, acting compassionate as long as someone is watching, playing to the crowds. They get applause, true, but that is all they get. When you help someone out, don't think about how it looks. Just do it, quietly, unobtrusively. This is the way your God, who conceived you in love, working behind the scenes, 
helps you out. And when you come before God, don't turn it into a theatrical production either. All these people making a regular show of their prayers, hoping for stardom. Do you think God sits in box seats? Here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet place, secluded, so you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can. The focus will shift from you to God, and you will begin to sense God's grace. The world is full of so-called prayer warriors who are prayer ignorant. They're full of formulas and programs and advice, peddling techniques for getting what you want from God. Don't fall for that nonsense. This is your father you're dealing with, and he knows better than you what you need. With a God like this loving you, you can pray very simply like this. Our Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Do what's best, as above, so below. Keep us alive with three square meals. Keep us forgiven and forgiving others. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. You're in charge. You can do anything you want. You are ablaze in beauty. Yes, yes, yes. In prayer, there's a connection between what God does and what you do. You don't get forgiveness from God, for instance, without also forgiving others. If you refuse to do your part, you cut yourself off from God's part. When you practice some appetite-denying discipline, to better concentrate on God, don't make a production of it. It might turn you into a small-time celebrity, but it won't make you a saint. If you go into training inwardly, Act normal outwardly. Shampoo and comb your hair, brush your teeth, wash your face. God doesn't require attention-getting devices. He won't overlook what you are doing. He will reward you well. Don't hoard treasure down here where it gets eaten by moths and corroded by rust or worse, stolen by burglars. Stockpile treasure in heaven where it is safe from moth and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is, is the place you will most want to be and end up being. Your eyes are windows into your body. If you open your eyes wide in wonder and belief, your body will fill up with light. If you live squinty-eyed in greed and distrust, your body is a dank cellar. If you pull the blinds on your wind windows, what a dark life you will have. You can't worship two gods at once. Loving one god, you'll end up hating the other. Adoration of one feeds contempt for the other. You can't worship God and money both. If you decide for God, living a life of God worship, it follows that you don't fuss about what's on the table at mealtimes or whether your clothes in your closet are in fashion. There's far more to your life than the food you put in your stomach and more to your outer appearance than the clothes that you hang on your body. Look at the birds, free and unfettered, not tied down to a job description, careless in the care of God. And you count far more than the birds.
Has anyone, by fussing in front of a mirror, ever gotten taller by so much as an inch? All this time and money wasted on fashion, do you think it makes that much difference? Instead of looking at the fashions, walk out into the fields. Look at the wildflowers. They never primp or shop. But have you ever seen color and design quite like it? The 10 best-dressed men and women in the country look shabby alongside them. If God gives such attention to the appearance of wildflowers, most of which are never even seen, don't you think he'll attend to you? Take pride in you. Do the best for you. What I'm trying to do here is to get you to relax. To not be so preoccupied with getting so that you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over these things, but you know both God and how God works. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday concerns will be met. Give your entire attention to what God is doing now. And don't get worked up about what may or may not happen tomorrow. God will help you deal with whatever hard things come up when that time comes. Don't pick on people. Jump on their failures, criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. That critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. It's easy to see a smudge on your neighbor's face and be oblivious to the ugly sneer on your own. Do you have the nerve to say, let me wash your face for you when your own face is contorted in, dis in contempt? It's this whole traveling roadshow mentality all over again, playing a holier-than-thou part instead of just living your part. Wipe that ugly sneer off your own face and you might be fit to offer a washcloth to your neighbor. Don't be flip with the sacred. Banter and silliness give no honor to God. Don't reduce holy mysteries to slogans. In trying to be relevant, you're only being cute and inviting sacrilege. Don't bargain with God. Be direct. Ask for what you need. This isn't a cat and mouse hide-and-seek game we're in. If your child asks you for bread, do you trick him with sawdust? If he asks you for fish, do you scare him with a live snake on his plate? As bad as you are, you wouldn't think of such a thing. You're at least decent to your own children. Don't you think that God, who conceived you in love, will be even better? Here's a simple rule of thumb guide for behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you, then grab the initiative and do it for them. Add up God's law and prophets, and that's what you get. Don't look for shortcuts to God. The market is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. Don't fall for that stuff, even though crowds of people do. The way to life, to God, is vigorous and requires a total attention. Be wary of false preachers who smile a lot, dripping with practice sincerity. 
chances are they're out to rip you off in one way or another. Don't be impressed with charisma. Look for character. Who preachers are is the main thing, not what they say. A genuine leader will never exploit your emotions or your pocketbook. These diseased trees with their bad apples are going to be chopped down and burned. Knowing the correct password, saying master, master, for instance, isn't going to get you anywhere with me. What is required is serious obedience, doing what my father wills. I can see it now at the final judgment, thousands strutting up to me saying, Master, we preached the message. We bashed the demons. Our God-sponsored projects have everyone talking. Do you know what I'm going to say? You missed the boat. All you did was use me to make yourselves important. You don't impress me one bit. You're out of here. These words I speak are not incremental additions to your life homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundational words, words to build a life on. If you work these words into your life, you are like a smart carpenter who built his house on solid rock. Rain poured down, the river flooded, a tornado hit, and nothing moved that house. It was fixed to the rock. But if you just use my words in Bible studies and you don't work them into your life, you are like a stupid carpenter who built his house on a sandy beach. And when a storm rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs>